Amen. You can be seated. We've kind of moved into the second part of Ephesians this week. The first part, we dealt with chapters 1 through 3, and now we're going to look at 4 through 6. There's some very interesting things that I'd like to bring up before we get into that teaching this morning, but before we even do that, I'd like to God's Word. So if you would, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, as I mentioned earlier, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I'm going to speak on this subject again. Walking together for the glory of God. Walking together for the glory of God. Let's look at his word together as we read. It says in verse 1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he has ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. In verse 11, it says, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by every of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the power or to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning, Father. This is something that we've all looked at many times, Father. We may have broken this scripture down into different parts, Fathers. We learned and we've taught them and we've, we've, we've studied them over uh, the, the course of our Christian walk with you. But Father, this morning I pray that you'll allow all of this to come together in one large picture, Father, so that we can understand how we are to walk together Father, in unity and in love. Father, as the local church walks together, the local body of believers walks together with one another, and how that local body as, as a whole walks together with your church around this globe, Father. Let us know what our part is individually this morning, Father. Let us and speak to us know what we are to do for you individually, Father, and, and reveal to us corporately as a local body of believers what it is that we must accomplish for your glory, Father. So teach us this morning what we didn't know about ourselves, what we didn't know about our local congregation. Teach us what we didn't know about our community, Father, so that we can better serve and equip them, Father. And we're asking you to teach us in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. 
As I said earlier, we've moved to the second part of Ephesians. We're now looking at chapter 4, and uh, this will be seven weeks now that we've been in the book of Ephesians, and I think everybody's enjoyed it to this, to this point. I know I have. Um, the only thing that I, that I say that, that maybe I'm, I'm not so joy, joyous over is that I didn't get to preach every sermon, because there's a lot to learn here, and when you're, when you're studying to prepare, it teaches you so much, not only about God's Word, but about who you are in Christ. And I've not been able to prepare each one of those. However, I have enjoyed sitting and listening to Walter and Michael and Brian bring God's Word and making it come alive in my life. And today we're going to continue that. We've got about another six weeks to go um, after today that we'll be looking at the book of Ephesians. But we've moved to the second part. And in the first three chapters, we've studied how rich we are in Christ. If you remember, I started that that first week to get us to understand our blessings in Christ, how rich we are, how wealthy we are. We studied how rich we are in Christ. In the second half, we will look at our responsibilities to Christ. So we were looking at our riches, now we're gonna look at our responsibilities. It's a response to our blessings that he's given us and that Paul told us and talked about in the first three chapters. The first half taught us of our wealth in Christ and now we will look at our walk with Christ. So it's our wealth and our walk our, our, uh, our riches and our responsibilities. And I emphasize this because before we can understand how to better walk with Christ, we must first understand what he has done for us. So we have to understand the doctrine before we can understand how to obey the doctrine. Let me illustrate it by saying this. I think everybody in this room is affected by some way, shape, or form of driving down the road. Are you not? I think each and every one of us, we either drive down the road or at some point we're driven down the road and we're responsible, or the person driving is responsible for our well-being. I think we could all uh, agree to that fact. Now, I also understand, and I think you understand, that speeding is against the law. I just want to take this small illustration and just look at the, the act of speeding. It is against the law. And, and we know that we must obey it, but we don't know why we should obey it. Have you ever thought about why speeding is against the law? Have you ever thought about why littering Going down the road is against the law. Well, let's, let's look at just speeding for just a moment to illustrate my point. You see, speeding, if we obey the speed limit, we actually receive a blessing. How do we receive a blessing? Well, we remain safer, correct? We all remain safer. We're going at a lower speed. We reduce the of having an accident if we have a mechanical failure, right? We all agree on that. If our brakes were to fail or if a tire was just a pop off of our car, I know that you're sitting here going, man, where are you making this stuff up? I've actually had that happen to me, and I was leaving a parking lot, and my front tire fell off my car, the whole thing, the lugs just rusted in half and fell off, and this is when we were, me and my wife were struggling, and I was, I was turning wrenches to keep things running just to get back and work, to, to work in the morning, and my front tire popped off, but my point is, is that if you have a mechanical failure, you're going at a rate of speed to where it's manageable. So it's a blessing, there's actually a blessing in obeying the law of speeding. It keeps us safer, it burns less fuel, which means less money out of our pocket, so that uh, there's less wear and tear on our vehicle, which means there's less uh, repair expenses in the end. If you think about it, the law of speeding is actually a blessing to us. Not only to us, but the person that's riding with you, the person that you're responsible for in the passenger seat or in the back seat. Not only them, but it's also a blessing to the other people on the road because you're going at a comfortable speed 
and you're obeying the speed limit and everyone, everyone wins in that situation. So my point is this, to illustrate that fact that we need to understand the doctrine so that we can obey him better, we must understand why it is against the law to speed so we can better understand why and how to obey it. We can appreciate it so much more if we understand the teachings behind it. And that's what Paul is trying to emphasize here. He's trying to tell us in the first part, we looked at our wealth and our riches, we looked at the doctrine, now what he's turning his focus to here is why we do that. How we respond to Christ for all the blessings and the riches he's given to us. God didn't tell us that he will bless us if we obey him. He never said that. He never taught that in the Old Testament. He's never taught that in the New Testament. He's never said that he will bless us if we obey him. You see, the fact is, is that we are already blessed. We're already blessed. Now, what we do in response to those blessings is to obey him. It's the other way around. We must understand the blessings and wealth taught to us in chapters 1 through 3 so we can respond appropriately by walking closer with him, which are the teachings in chapters 4 through 6. Now, let me further say this. Uh, that this is where we are and this is his teachings because I want to point out one word in verse one that we read. In verse one, he says, therefore. So the first word that we read is therefore. Now, who starts a sentence like that? John, if you and I were to meet at the water cooler at work, you wouldn't greet me. Therefore, I wish you a good morning. I wouldn't know what you mean. What, what are you talking about? What happened beforehand? It, it's another word that might start with so. You ever, you ever ask somebody a question? Hey, how does this work? So, this is what you do. The, the word therefore indicates that there's something beforehand. Something has been taught beforehand. So, it's interesting to note that Paul wasn't off his rocker. If you're an ex-English teacher, please don't chastise Paul for starting out this way. You see, it indicates that there was a teaching, a prior teaching. And we, we know that in verses 1 through 3. And the word therefore, now it starts out this way because Paul is building on what he taught earlier. What he is building on is what he was teaching in the first half that we looked at. What Paul is about to express to the church at Ephesus is the same thing that we should be taught and understand to, in today's church uh, for the body of believers, for the glory of God. First, he teaches us how to have a graceful walk together. A graceful walk. Now, I gave you some notes. If you have your notes, I don't know if I printed out this morning. Uh, but, but if you have your notes, I, I was looking at this, and Paul teaches us, first of all, to have a graceful walk. Now, I, I want you to understand when I talk about a graceful walk, I'm talking about together, collectively, as a church, as a body of believers, that we have a graceful walk, that we come together in unity based upon God's grace, and that we all agree on certain things. Now, we all have different outlooks. We all will, will do something a certain way. All of us will wash our car a certain way. All of us will teach our children a certain way. All of us will, will just do various tasks throughout the day in different ways, but we're all trying to accomplish the same goal. When it comes to doctrine, we must agree that God's word and the foundation of the truth is based upon God's teachings. So we must agree on these things. In, the first, in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the picture of a human body to illustrate 
how the body of Christ or Christians are supposed to work together for God. He points that out in, in 1 Corinthians. And, and here, Paul is teaching us how to use Christian graces, and I'm going to point those Christian graces out. He, he tells us how to use those Christian graces to work together in the body of believers so we may walk with one another, that we may walk closer with Christ, and that we may walk closer in the Spirit, in the Spirit of God. Each one of these graces may be effective in and of themselves. Each one of them stand alone. They are, they are good attributes to have, good attributes to attain. In and of themselves, they're good for us. However, they will work perfectly in each, if each one of us has these evident in our life. So as a result of the blessings or the wealth of God that he's given us, we must use these graces to the glory of God. Now here, here are those graces that I want to look at. In and, and verse 1, he tells us what? To walk in a manner worthy. To walk in a manner worthy. Now he lists the ways to do this. And one that he mentions is, is to walk in humility. If you, if you look there in, in, verse, in verse two there, it says, he, he says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility. So he tells us as a body of believers, now in order for us to walk as a body of believer like this, we have to walk individually with humility. If, if we fail at the individual part of it, then the corporate body has no chance. So you must understand, as I talk about the unity among the church, that we must understand that first it has to be evident in our individual life. And, and the first thing that he says is to walk in humility. That, that is, a, a, that is a, a graceful gift that God has given us to be able to walk in humility. And the next thing that he mentions is what? Meekness, and some, some translations might say meekness or gentleness or self-control in some of the more modern translations, we might see self-control. That is power under control or meekness. And, and I think you've all read that. I'll point to some other scripture here later that'll tell you that this Paul's just not thinking of these things and not just a good idea in his mind. These are teachings from Christ. So that we must walk in humility, we must walk with gentleness together, and that we must be patient. Look, look what else he says in verse 2. I just want to point these out. Each point this morning is going to have a list with it of things that Paul is teaching. He says, with gentleness, with patience, to have patience and showing tolerance for one another in love. Now, that word tolerance doesn't mean acceptance. It just means to be tolerant with one another. It means to be able to live side by side together even though we might disagree. It means, to, I mean, we live beside each other in the, in the political realm in this country, we all have varying differences in our political stances. Um, and, and in this country today, you can see they're, they're so far apart on so many issues. But however, we're told to live tolerant with one another, to be able to live together with one another, even though we might not agree. Now, when we're talking about the spiritual realm, when we're talking about the doctrines and the teachings of Christ, we must all agree on these things. And what he's saying is, is that there are people out there, for instance, you would be shocked to know that there are Hindus out there, that there are Buddhists out there, that there are Jehovah's Witnesses out there. There are people out there with a different religious view than you have. There are people out there in this very community right now that have a different path of heaven to heaven 
than what you see and what you believe. There are people. Our, our responsibility is to live tolerant among them so that we can show them the love of Christ, so that they can be attracted to the cross, and then we might give them the gospel, and that the purpose of the gospel is to bring glory to God by bringing more people into his fold, more people to have fellowship with him. That is the bottom line. That is how you bring glory to God. Amen? That's how you bring glory to God. So we must be tolerant. He also mentions in verse 2, as he goes on to say, he says that, that we show tolerant for one another in love, being diligent, that we must be diligent in everything that we believe. We must work hard at everything that we're doing for God. We must work hard for one another. We must work hard for our families. We must work hard for our communities. And we should do it with all diligence because we're showing the people that don't know Christ who Christ is, we're showing them the way to the cross, and therefore we're bringing glory to God by doing so. The next thing that he says, the last thing that he mentions in verse two there, he says, uh, with, uh, I'm sorry, in verse three, he says, in, to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So he is telling us that we should live peaceful among one another, that we should be a peaceful congregation, and that we all agree on these things. Now, in and of itself, as I said earlier, these are wonderful things to have in your life. But collectively as a whole, they're even better. When they're evident and each one is evident in your life, it works out perfectly because they work together with one another. They build upon one another. For, for, for instance, if you don't have much patience, you might not have a lot of meekness. Uh, you could look at this and say, if, if, if you don't have a lot of humility, you probably don't have a lot of peace. And if you don't have any peace, you're probably not very humble. The, the point is, is that each one ex accentuates the other, and we should portray all of these just as the body of Christ works together. So he tells us that there's a graceful walk. Now he also teaches us, Paul also teaches us, how to have a grounded walk. And I want to look at that grounded walk. As I said before, Paul spoke of the doctrinal foundations in the first three chapters that we looked at. So we could better understand how to unite as Christians and walk together. That's what his teachings were. He, he taught us who we are in Christ and the blessings and the wealth that we have in him. Now these are biblical truths that are taught throughout the word of God. It's not just found in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians that Paul wrote. This is found and this is the same uh, uh, teaching that's consistent all through God's word. They are, they are taught throughout God's word. It's these biblical truths that we must see as our foundation to be united and to walk together for one goal and that is to bring glory to the Father by many means. You see, there's a lot of ways that we can bring glory to the Father. We can do it through our gifts and our abilities, our talents. We can do it through our giving of our time, of our energy. We can do it with giving of our money. There's a lot of ways that we can bring glory to God, and we don't even realize it. C coming to church on Sunday morning and listening to the pastor, or listening to the choir, or even singing in the choir, or playing an instrument in the band, is not going to lead anyone to Christ. Portraying the love of Christ through what you do will attract them to Christ. See, sometimes we'll do things because it looks good. Sometimes we think we're serving God when we're really not. But when we do it with a true motive 
to lead others to Christ, then and only then can the Spirit work in between us and the non-believer. So we can't, we have to do it with pure motives. We have to do it to bring glory to God. So so what I'm telling you here is these are not ideals uh, or ideas from a man. These, these, next, uh, these next things that I'm going to bring up uh, to be grounded in our walk together, these are not ideas just brought up from a man or just good ideas that Paul has said, you know what, it would be a pretty good idea if we did these things. It's, it's not that. These are foundational teachings that come from God's Word. They're foundational doctrines uh, which, should, which should unite us as Christians, and these are truths that we must agree on, that we must agree on. The prophet Amos says this. If you put that on the board, I want us to all understand this. He says, is it not on there? It says in, in Amos chapter 3, verse 3, listen to what it says. Do two men walk together unless they have an appointment? Do two men walk together unless they have an appointment? Now, your, your translation that you're looking at, this is New American Standard. You might be looking at something a little different. The ESV uh, has a little bit different. The, the King James Version says, unless they agree. Uh, there's all kind of, but, but the, the point here is, is that I, I want us to understand that two men cannot work and, and walk together in agreement unless they plan to meet. Now, let me, let me explain to you just quickly what he's saying here, because I don't want us to get lost in translation between the different, between the, uh, the different translations that each one of us might be looking at. But, but what he's saying is, this is significant, because what he's saying is, is if, the, if we agree with one another, then we will have no problem meeting with each other. Now, your boss, you ever had a disagreement with your boss, and then he calls you into your office, and you're like, I don't, I don't want to go in there. I don't want to do that. Um, I'm too opinionated. Uh, I'm going to give them both barrels, and this isn't going to be pretty. And according to my side of it, it's going to be a bloodbath when I, I don't want to go in there. Because we don't agree. We're going to argue, we're going to fuss, we're going to fight, and the bottom line is he's going to slam his fist down on the desk and say, this is the way it is. Suck it up, buttercup. I knew my wife would get a laugh at it. That's the best shot at amen you got all day, sweetheart. She tells me a lot all the time. Suck it up, buttercup. That's what she tells me. Now, I, I think she's playing. She, she better be playing. But we all know what that means. We don't want to meet. We disagree. I, I don't want to meet with that person. I have nothing in common with them. We, we, we're two different ends of the spectrum. There's no sense in us meeting. What Amos is saying is that if we can agree on something, we'll be willing to meet together. E even if we're close, we can talk it out. So having said that, if we have no problem meeting together, then we have no problem coming to agreement on one common goal. In this case, it's to be united found on foundational and biblical truths to the glory of God. That's the whole purpose, that we use all of these foundational uh, truths for the glory of God. Now, Paul goes on to point out seven spiritual realities that we need to know and understand in order to be grounded in our walk together. In order to be grounded in our walk, we need to look at these things. A grounded walk has one body. Look, look what he says. Let's look at God's word. Let's, let's look back at it here. Um, excuse me, I'm trying to find my place on my notes. Please forgive me. But he says in verse 4, there is one body. 
and one spirit. Now, that one body is that there's one body of Christ. There's, there's only one. Different views, different religions don't fit into our body. It, it just doesn't fit. I, I told a, a story the other night. Uh, I, I shared it with our Life Connect group back there this morning. Um, that Wednesday night I did something that I'm rather ashamed of. And I'll illustrate it by saying this. Uh, I went to work, and as you know, I've been on a very strict eating regimen for the last uh, year, a little over a year, and I've, I've lost quite a bit of weight, and I've been, I feel better, but I've, I've watched how much sugar I've put into my body and what my intake is, specifically with sugar, but if it's got chocolate on it, you've won my heart, I, I just, hands down. And someone brought in a chocolate lasagna to work the other day. And I scooped some of that, and I don't even want to describe it, because every time I do, I get hungry. But I took a big helping, and I said, you know what, I don't eat many sweets anymore. I don't do this. I don't indulge. If I do, I have a small portion. My wife will tell you that I've cut way back on those things. And I don't eat them every night. And I'll have very small portions. I took a big helping with the serving spoon. I put it on there. I took my spoon, and I scraped that serving. You've got to scrape that serving. It's, it's, it's not of God to leave chocolate lasagna on the serving spoon and put it back in the pan. You've got to scrape it off. So I scraped it off, and what I did was I made one mistake. Was I took that spoon as I was putting it back in the refrigerator, and I licked it. And I said, okay, this isn't going to happen. So I went back, and I got another scoop and put it on my plate. Now, the result was is that I got sick about an hour and a half later. When feeling good, my head was spinning. It didn't belong in my body. And I'm saying that to illustrate this. If, it's not, if it doesn't line up with, God, with the doctrines of God, it doesn't belong in the body. We must agree on these things. My body rejected all of that sugar, and it rejected something that I loved, but it didn't fit. It had to come out. Now, let me save you the, the, the mental picture I put in your head there. Didn't come out. I survived, and every bit of that sugar stayed within me until my body finally absorbed it, but I was sick as I don't know what. I had heartburn, my chest was burning, and I told Miss Sylvia that I was not going to tell Debbie this because I missed choir practice Wednesday night because of it. However, that was it just didn't fit in my body. And as a believer... And as a part of the body of Christ, we must all fit. Now, he goes on to say, and I'll move on, that he also says that there's one spirit. You see that? Now, we're going to look at these a little bit closer tonight. I told you that we're going to look at these. I'm just going to kind of go through them. I'm not going to explain them too far in depth, but I want to look at them. There's one spirit. Then what does he say? And that's one Holy Spirit that we all agree upon. There's one hope of your calling. Now, he's talking about when Jesus comes back that, that we have the hope and our calling is to be a part of the family. So it's that hope of our calling. There's one Lord, right? Jesus Christ is the only one. What does God's word says? There's no other name under heaven by which you shall be what? Saved. One Lord. One Lord. There's one faith that he talks about. And that is faith in Jesus Christ that we all agree that that faith is focused on one thing. And that is Jesus Christ and that, uh, that we move forward with that in agreement so that we can walk together. There's one baptism. Now, some people disagree on which baptism he's talking about. Is this water or, or spiritual baptism? I believe this is a spiritual baptism in the sense that when we are saved and the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, we are baptized in that Holy Spirit. In other words, we are submerged with this Holy Spirit. 
I'm not saying that it should be evident by anything. I'm not trying to teach that. What I'm saying is, is that I believe that this is a spiritual baptism, which a lot of scholars agree, but he says there's one baptism, and then what does it say? He tops it off with one God, and there is one God. Go back to the prophet Elijah when he lined up all the prophets, the 400 prophets of Baal, and told them to, crawl, to call on their God and allow fire to come down and consume the altar. And they cried and cried for hours. They began to cut themselves to get their, their gods, uh, Baal, to, to acknowledge them and to act. And they wouldn't. It's because there's one God, and that God prevailed that day. A graceful walk and a grounded walk are what we have in common in order to work together. That's something that we all have in common, that's something we should all agree upon. Now I want to look at, very quickly, at how we as individuals differ. We, we do differ, believe it or not, we're different. We have different personalities, we have different outlooks. I want to look at how we differ as individuals, but still are able to glorify God by using our differences collectively to accentuate each other and to support each other in this walk with Christ, to bring glory to him. <coughs> Why? As I said, to bring glory to God. The first part of our mission here at Holmes Avenue Baptist Church is this. We exist to glorify God and to, bring, and to make disciples of Christ. That is our mission statement. Uh, Brian and I, when, when, when Brian first came on here, we developed a statement here, and we have adhered to that. Our purpose is to bring glory to God first and foremost. Now, some can argue that that second part, to make disciples of Christ, is a way of glorifying God, and you would be correct. But these are our two most important focuses. Number one, to glorify God. That is the purpose of the body of Christ, to glorify him, as I said earlier in my introduction, by many different means. So I want to look at how we're different, but yet we can still bring glory to God. He teaches us to have a gifted walk. So we've had a, we've had a graceful walk and a grounded walk. That means we all agree on those things, but now he's talking about a gifted walk. And let me talk, tell you what I mean by that. We all have at least one gift to which we can lead others to Christ and bring glory to God. We all have at least one gift. One spiritual gift that we have to focus. Now, we don't always, we, we also have natural abilities. And I say this because I don't want you to confuse the two. I don't want you to confuse spiritual gifts with natural abilities. Natural abilities are something that we just seem, that we just seem to have a knack for, like running fast or being physically strong. Uh, it, it might be that you have a quick wit. I, you know, I wish I had a quick wit. I wish I could come back to people uh, very quickly. Some people have that, that ability to do that. But, but let's look at even deeper. Those are some things that are on the surface that really don't amount to making who a man or a person is. But let's look at something deeper like having an artistic ability, being able to paint or to draw, or to be able to compose music, or be able to write lyrics to a song, or to act, or to write, uh, to write novels. Some people are just born with natural abilities to be able to do these things, and we know that. But let's not confuse them. Now, I, I will say this. You can use those things for the glory of God, but what I want to point out is our gifts. I don't want them to be confused with our natural abilities. Now, let me further explain uh, what I'm talking about. A God-given ability is something that God blessed you with in order to use for his glory or for, or, I'm sorry, a God-given talent is something God blessed you with in order for you to use for his glory for leading others to Christ. 
Now, these gifts are often unknown to the believer, especially when you're first saved. We, people ask me, oh, Pastor, what's my spiritual gift? I have no idea. If, if you're a pastor, ever been a pastor, somebody's asked you that question. I have no idea. That's something that you need to ask God. I, I might have some ideas. If I've known you for many years, I might have some ideas to help take you in that direction. But when a pastor becomes the pastor of a church, in the first six months, he'll get that question from 80 people. And he has no idea because he doesn't know you. He doesn't touch touch the spirit with you. And it's something that we just can't answer. So most of the time, a, a believer who's just come into the fold of Christ and, and knows Christ as their Savior, he doesn't even know what it is. And it has to become evident in their life through much prayer, and they have to develop this, this uh, gift that God has given them. They just don't start to use it right as soon as they find out what it is. You have to, you have to understand what it is, and then you have, to be, you have to be taught, you have to be nurtured, you have to be discipled, and you have to know more about Christ in order to use it effectively. Let me, let me illustrate this by saying this. You know, I'm a, a big sports fan. And go Yankees, right? Amen. Go Yankees. Who's going to watch the Yankees win tonight? Anybody? A bunch of Braves fans. All right, so, so let me explain it by this. And I, I've used this ex expression before or this illustration using a football player, but let me use a baseball player. When a baseball player comes up to bat and he's going to swing that bat, he might have a natural ability with upper body strength to just crush a baseball. But he's not very controlling of that baseball. He really can't control too much where it goes or how it goes, or he can't make solid contact with it every time. His hand-eye coordination's not where it should be. But man, if he ever puts the meat on that ball, it's gone. There's no hope. And he can hit it. You can go home, make a sandwich, eat that sandwich, take a nap, and get up, and the ball's still going. And it hadn't landed yet. He's just got a natural ability to be able to crush a baseball. But until he understands how to open his hips and at the right time to turn those hips in the middle of his swing, before he can understand how to better hit that baseball with his stance, when he learns all of these abilities that are taught to him by a coach or someone else that is nurturing him and teaching him, man, every time he swings that ball, it's going to go over the fence has some natural abilities to be able to run fast and to power that ball over the fence, but he needs some control. He needs to learn how to understand how to use it. That's what a spiritual gift is. A lot of times we don't know what they are. However, we must use those and hone those and practice those in order to use them for God's glory to be effective. There's three places in the New Testament that list our spiritual gifts. Uh, just so you know, I put them in your notes. One is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, one is in Romans chapter 12, and the other one is right here in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, let me move on because I know it's getting late, but y'all know how I am. At least I think you do. He mentions four things here. He lists the titles of some gifts that are given to men for the church to function and teach the people to walk together in unity. Now, I'll look at these a little closer tonight, but I want to point them out that what he has said, the first thing that he listed that he lists here are that some were given as apostles. These are different than just disciples. They weren't just followers. They actually functioned and they actually witnessed uh, Christ. They were here when Christ was living. They, they witnessed his teachings. They, they, they witnessed other things. They witnessed his, uh, his, his, his death. Uh, these were apostles. I'll get into that deeper tonight. Then there were prophets that he lists. And those were people that they weren't just, a, a, a prophet just doesn't predict the future like we seem to think. A prophet proclaims the word of God. And in order to proclaim the word of God during this early church, 
what they had was prophets, people that proclaimed the word of God because, see, they didn't have New Testament scripture with them in their hand or on their cell phones to, to learn by every day. It was still being written. They were living that history. So there were prophets that proclaimed the word of God to them, not necessarily the future, but the teachings of God, and that's what they were. They were prophets. And then they have evangelists. How are they going to know unless someone goes out and shares with them the love of Christ to, to, to build off the foundations of the prophets and the apostles, the evangelists would go out, solidify what they were teaching, and people would come to know Christ. And the fourth thing, the fourth thing that he mentions are pastors and teachers. Pastors, of course, being a shepherd of the flock, and, and he, he groups these things together. He doesn't say some as pastors and some as teachers. He says some as pastors and teachers. Some pastors are, are great pastors, but terrible teachers. Some people are great teachers, but not great pastors. Some have the gift and the ability to do both. So that's what he lists, he lists in order so that we can have in our differences and our different abilities and our different uh, uh, gifts, we can walk together and have a gifted walk together in Christ as a body of believers. And the fourth thing I want to look at is this. He teaches us to have a growing walk. And as I go over this, Ben, you can come forward. And I'll, I'll point out this last point to you. He teaches us to have a growing walk. Paul now shares with us the reason for everything that he has written, verses 1 through 11. He's, he's going to share with you the why and the how. In, in verses... Um, 12 through 16, Paul is going to explain a little bit deeper what he means in verses 1 through 11. In verse 11, or in verse 12, listen to what he says. In verse 12, he says, for the equipping of the saints. He goes from what we're doing how we're taking those doctrinal teachings, applying them to our everyday lives and to the body of believers, because remember, he's writing this to the church of Ephesus, not each individual believer. He's writing it to the church. And he said it's for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. That you're to do all of these things that we just talked about in verses 1 through 11 for the equipping of the saints. Now, if you were here the first week I preached on Ephesians chapter 1, we determined who those saints were, correct? The saints are who? Those that are saved, those that believe in Jesus Christ. A saint is not just, it's, it's just not something that a group of men or an organization comes up with and says, well, this person is a saint because they did so many miracles. A saint is anyone who is born into the fold of Jesus Christ, born again, and has surrendered their life to Christ. That's who a saint is. So that was to equip the saints. That was why he was telling us. Now let's look at how he tells us to do it. Let's look at the how. He says to do this in verse 13. He says, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a nature, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What he is saying is, is that we need to be Christ-like. And in order to have a growing walk, we must be Christ-like. Now, that not only helps us grow, but who else does it help grow? Those that we're discipling. It will help a community grow. 
So we must be Christ-like. Look what he says in verse 14. How do we do this? Verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every doctrine or by the trickery of men or craftiness and deceitful scheming. He's telling us to have stability in our Christian walk. He's telling us to stand on the promises of God, to stand on the doctrines of God. He's telling us to stand true to who we are in Christ and not waver here and there with what we believe. Not to give in because we might hurt someone's feelings, but to stand, to stand fast on the word of God. In verse 15, he says, in verse 15, Paul writes, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects to him who is the head, even Christ. He says that we need to be joined by the truth in love. You see, if you speak to someone with love, but don't tell them the truth, you become a hypocrite. If, if you speak to someone the truth without love, you become a bully. You must balance the two, and it is the truth and love in Jesus Christ. And the fourth thing that he points out at how we do this, how do we accomplish this in verse 16, he says, from whom the whole body being fitted together and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. He's telling us to cooperate with one another. We have to cooperate. When we come into our churches and we fuss and we fight and we argue, we're showing the community and the world that we just can't get along, that we just can't meet together, as Amos says, that we just cannot do these things, and therefore we must disagree on who Christ is or what he has done for us or how we even get to heaven if we can't agree on the smallest of things. When it leaks into a church and it becomes a doctrinal issue where we're split doctrinally, it is a dangerous place to be. You might as well put out outside of your church and just write Ichabod above your door and your doorpost. And Ichabod means that the glory of Christ has departed. When it comes to this point where we begin to disagree doctrinally, it becomes detrimental to who we are as a church. And it tears us up individually to the point that some people turn away and never return again. And we can argue the fact that maybe they weren't Christians in the first place. We can argue all those things. However, we can all agree that the damage is done if we don't walk in unity together with Christ, if we don't have a graceful walk and a grounded walk, if, if we don't have a walk that is growing in us and in the people around us. So as we sing this last song today, as we all stand and sing, I want you to think about the things that God has taught us through Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. I want you to ask yourself, is this who I am in Christ? Are all of these things that were listed, is this who I am? Am I showing that love of Christ through my humility or my meekness or my patience? Am, am I being the witness that God has called me to be? I might not be called to be an evangelist, but am I at least witnessing and telling others about Christ? Think about all these things that we talked about and ask yourself, is this who I truly am in Christ? This is what Paul was pointing out to the church at Ephesus, and this is what we need to live by today as well. Let's stand and sing one last time.